Welcome back to the program. It has been said, although the origin is uncertain, that there are no atheists in foxholes. The same might be said of prisons, particularly prisons in America, a country that is both a high regard for religion and an even higher regard for mass incarceration. My guest Joshua Dubler, in his new book, Down in the Chapel, begins to take a look at how these ideas might be related and what this microcosm of prison and religion might say not only about the men he talks to, but about our society at large. Joshua Dubler is an assistant professor of religion at the University of Rochester, and it is my pleasure to welcome him here today to talk about his book, Down in the Chapel, Religious Life in an American Prison. Joshua Dubler, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you here. It does seem like the, these two themes are, are very powerful in, in America. The idea that we have such a high regard for religion in so many respects, particularly compared to other Western nations, and we also have this obsession almost with mass incarceration. Talk about those two ideas coming together. Right. I believe uh, the statistic is that uh, we have 5% of the world's population and roughly 25% of its prisoners. But I mean, you, you put your finger on what really is the generative uh, irony uh, of the book, which is that uh, at, at Greaterford Prison, a maximum security prison outside of Philadelphia, which is a, a monument to American unfreedom, uh, we nonetheless find showcased um, one of the freedoms that we really point to uh, as Americans about you know what makes us free, and that's the, the First Amendment right to free religious exercise. Um, and so that's what kind of gives the book its spirit and uh, and also its structure, because uh, over the course of any given week, uh, something like 12 officially recognized religious denominations host 55 worship services, Bible studies, uh, music group rehearsals, uh, and and that's kind of the the spine of the book. And you've done this over the course of seven days, and what goes on in that chapel during the course of seven days? Um, it's much of it is is very quotidian and ordinary. Um, uh, the central characters in the book are largely drawn from the ranks of men who work uh, in the chapel as as clerks and janitors. Uh, the central characters also include the chaplains and the correctional officers. Um, and most of what happens is uh, people passing the time. I mean, you have very serious men, many of whom uh, all but one of that group are, are pursuing a, 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 a spiritual path quite seriously. But the day in, day out is... Uh, a very strange office. One of the things that you talk about is how these men have a, a, a powerful sense of religion, what it means to them, and, and in a larger sense, really how it helps define who they are. Talk about that. Uh, I mean, I certainly think that many of them would say what you said in, in the opening about how there are no atheists in the foxhole. Um, Many of them will also say that prison is a place where you really need to know who you are or else uh, someone else will tell you, will try to bring you around to what they're about. So it's a place where the kinds of selves that they are in the day-to-day, uh, they, they perform, um, uh, you know, very strictly and seriously. Uh, at the same time, as far as their religion goes, you know, I'm a strange kind of uh, religious tourist there. Uh, I grew up in New York City, uh, raised by essentially um, 
uh, agnostic Orthodox Jews. Uh, and so I come to the study of religion uh, as a kind of oddity. And as it turns out, um, most of the time when you're dealing with serious religious people, uh, they really, uh, really mean uh, what they're about as far as their religion goes. When you look at the religion inside this prison, to what extent is the religion part of rehabilitation for these men in some way? They would certainly say so. Uh, a, a dominant way of talking about um, not only religion, but especially, especially religion, uh, they don't talk so much about, they, they, they tend to reject the language of rehabilitation since they see rehabilitation as that which the state tries to impose. But they talk a lot, um, especially the evangelicals, but not exclusively, about what they call transformation. And uh, many of them, in understanding uh, who they are, uh, they understand themselves as people who used to be lost, who used to be really confused about how to be, and because they were confused, they made terrible choices, many of them, but that they are no longer the men that they once were. What difference is there in this prison of, of approximately 3,500 people? What difference is there between those that are there for life and those that, are, that know they're getting out at some point? as it relates to how they view religion? It's a great question. Um, uh, Pennsylvania uh, is a place where life is life. That is to say, lifers aren't parole eligible. And uh, 700 or so residents at Greaterford are serving the sentence of life without the possibility of parole. And they uh, really uh, inform the culture of the prison. Um, and so the central characters, all but a few, are lifers. What they tell me, uh, they say that the, the, the men who are just, you know, serving five to ten years, uh, they treat it like they're just passing through, and they're able to um, experience prison as if it's not their real life, uh, and that their real life will resume when they get out, whereas these, uh, the lifers um, embrace that this is where they live. And so uh, what uh, resources, uh, programming resources there are at the prison uh, are really uh, overwhelmingly uh, involved the lifers. And out of that comes a sense that the lifers have in some ways a greater sense of freedom within the context of the prison. <laughs> right, right. Talk about that. that. I mean, yeah, that, I mean, that's really... Uh, Thank you for excavating that. I mean, that's really a daring thing that they say, right? And so this is, um, you know, we find this, you know, every since Plato and Jesus, um, uh, in, in the West, we tend to uh, tell stories uh, where one's body is really not at the heart of who one is. And in fact, you know, in some sense, the spirit is trapped in the body, right? So this is an old story we tell in the West, that freedom isn't about the state of your body, it's the state of your spirit. And uh, the story, their understanding of their experiences is that indeed, back when they were on the street, when they were young men, when they were caught up in this or that, they were enslaved to something. And there are these men who uh, have spent decades in prison, uh, this is especially Christians who talk this way, who would say that they are more free uh, than you or me um, uh, because they know what they're for. I mean, what they're for most often is, is, uh, is to testify to uh, what Jesus Christ did um, uh, on the cross for us. Um, I find it one of the most provocative claims, and it's one that I want the reader to wrestle with. I don't want the reader to uh, reject it out of hand, even though you know, we have a way of, of pitying uh, uh, essentially uh, enslaved people who nonetheless profess that they are free. Um, 
I want the reader to take it seriously, but it, but it's a very uh, provocative claim and and ultimately one that as a as a free person um, I feel obligated to reject. That pity also relates to how we view religion. I mean, you talk about it in terms of the, the bad man versus poor man view of religion. Talk about that connection. Yeah, thank you. So this is um, two, I think, dominant frameworks, uh, uh, which I assume that readers will bring to the text, and which I think speak volumes about how we think about religion and how we think about prisoners as a culture. So uh, the dominant one is what I call the bad man of religion. And that's because uh, we talk about religion um, coming out of a, of a liberal Protestant tradition in which uh, one's religious, religion is about belief, and it's about what one believes in one's heart of hearts. Um, we tend to think of we tend to define prisoners uh, by virtue of, of what they have done, of, of, of their crime. And so when we see uh, prisoners professing a religious faith, one of our impulses is to say that they're faking it for this or that reason. That's what I call the, the bad man of religion. And, and this is, uh, I think, something many readers will bring to the text, and it's certainly uh, something that many men in the chapel uh, think about one another. Um, the other one, uh, which I call the poor man of religion, is a sort of more of a secularist notion um, in which uh, prisoners are victims of their circumstance, and religion is for uh, people who don't have anything else. You could think back to Barack Obama mm -hmm. in 2008 being overheard saying that you know people cling to their guns and their religion, right? And so this is the poor man of religion. This is an object. This is the the religious prisoner is an object of pity. Right, so if the bad man, you assume that when it comes to their uh, the stuff they say about religion, they can't really mean it. When we think about the poor man, we might say, "Oh, they mean it, but they probably oughtn't." Poor things. One of the things these men bring to it, though, is a certain confidence about whatever they they believe with respect to religion, be they Christians or Muslims or anything else. There, there is a confidence that they bear that is that is different, perhaps, than it might be on the outside. Many of them would certainly say so, right? That's about not having the wiggle room um, uh, that people out on the street have, that you can uh, be about one thing today and one thing tomorrow. In prison, you have to be one thing. But, but they would say. But this is really at, you know, at the heart, of, I think, of some of the really uh, fun um, dynamics in the book, uh, where uh, myself, uh, as this, uh, this secular humanist uh, Jew, uh, who's in there and, and trying to make sense of what I, what I think the ethical life entails, uh, what I think um, the good life entails, talking to these men um, who, who are very certain, have very certain answers to those questions. Uh, but in this respect, I don't, it's really an open question. Um, they are prisoners, but they're also very much Americans. Um, uh, you know, one of the, uh, the the sort of traces that you find in the book is is American religious history and the ways in which over the last 200 years, uh, 250 years, uh, we moved from having these uh, uh, state churches to this kind of um, uh, this this freewheeling democratic sensibility where um, anybody, uh, you know, God 
wants to be understood, and anybody can open the text and, and understand what God's will is for them. And that's a really American way to think about God. And these men are very much Americans in that way. They have strange uh, idiosyncratic ideas uh, about God, uh, no more idiosyncratic that, than I do, um, uh, but they come to them via their own intellect, via their own experience, and they seem to me anyway uh, to have tremendous confidence in their religious truth. And it is one of the striking things about this, that there is something so profoundly American in this whole story that that you couldn't tell this story with these men in these situations in any other country, in prisons in any other country, even other Western countries. Yeah, I mean, the story is also more local than that. It's also very much a Philadelphia story mm-hmm. and a Pennsylvania story. And I'm sure that a California story, um, uh, a San Quentin story would look different. But yes, it's, I mean, in the, the, the two... Uh, nodes that you identified at the outset, um, the, 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 the propensity to punish and the propensity to, uh, to freely experience God as individuals. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very American soup, most definitely. And that's, you know, the subtitle of the book, which I wrestled with for a long time, uh, uh, Religious Life in an American Prison. Um, it, it really is a, a quintessentially American story. Talk a little bit about the local aspect of it, because even though we might think of this prison as being an island unto itself, it is very much a part of Philadelphia, the place where it sits. Yeah, so I argue. I mean, I I tell the story particularly um, uh, with the history of Islam. Um, uh, as it emerges in the city of Philadelphia, Malcolm X fi- uh, founds the Nation of Islam Temple 12 in 1954. Elijah Muhammad's son, uh, Wallace, takes over. Then there are all sorts of shifts and turns. And, it, and it's a very local story, um, uh, which is hugely significant. Greaterford is also a place that is tied to the city of Philadelphia in so many ways. It's a relatively uh, porous institution uh, in our day and age, and there are lots of folks from the community who engage in all sorts of activities uh, at Greaterford. But, but it's also a kind of a methodological stake in the ground that I make, uh, that, I, that, I, that I put in the ground, um, because I, I was wary of, 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 of telling uh, a story about, so here's what religion in prison is all about. That didn't seem to me to be an appropriate story to tell, uh, even though most of the men uh, in the book uh, will tell the reader through me, uh, here's exactly what religion in prison is about. You also talk about the history of Islam as it relates to not just this prison, but, but mass incarceration in general. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly... The, the shadow uh, of, of Malcolm X's conversion um, the first time, uh, as, he descri- as, Ale- as he and Alex Haley describe it in the autobiography, is, is just a, a major archetype, uh, I think, for Americans but, and, and also for the men in the prison, uh, whether Muslim, Christian, or even secular. Uh, that's, that goes back to that idea of transformation. Here's a man who, in his very uh, self-conscious styling of himself, um, uh, was a, a gangster Detroit Red, uh, and then you know something happens to him uh, in prison, and he comes to embrace Islam. Uh, the, the, there's an historical story that's very particular to Philadelphia, and the shift from the Nation of Islam to a particular uh, version of Sunni Islam uh, called Salafism, uh, which is uh, quite uh, legalistic and apolitical. Um, but you know the specter, and in this day and age, uh, it seems 
the, the Muslim prisoners uh, practice uh, under great suspicion, and that's because, on the one hand, prison administrators uh, see them as potential uh, Malcolm X's, uh, and on the other hand, they see them, you know, uh, after 9-11 as, as, potential, as potential terrorists. Talk about the generational differences, and, and there certainly are some. There, there are a couple of, of the characters that you spend a lot of time with who are kind of the older guys, the, the, the wise men of the prison, and, and there are younger ones as well who are more, more playful in their approach. Well, this is a, 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 yeah, a, a central uh, dynamic is these older men, uh, the, the, central, the central characters, uh, two of them, one, uh, Baraka, is, is one of these uh, old um, progressives uh, who was in the Nation of Islam um, and now is a Sunni, and the other, uh, Al, uh, who's, who also used to be in the Nation of Islam, but it's, but it's a Christian. And they're both, you know, this, this type that uh, they know what they're about. Uh, they've figured out what they're about, and they don't have that much patience for, uh, for especially younger people who aren't fully committed to their religious truths. Um, the younger people are younger people. Uh, they're figuring it out. A lot of them are younger lifers who have not yet accepted that they're going to die in prison. Um, few of the men uh, in the chapel have accepted that. Uh, they're all working on their case in one way or another. Um, and that kind of disciplining and there's a, there's a central scene, a Bible study, where Al, the, the older lifer, is, is, is disciplining the younger lifers into, into trying to get them to commit to one particular truth. And you know, the, the question that, that, I, that I, I raise for the reader, and I think that the reader can't also help but ask, is, you know, so how much is this, is, is this acculturation uh, uh, to prison? How much is this product, the, the production of this kind of certitude, of a, of a kind of epistemic closure where you're only available to one kind of truth? How much is that, what it, how much is that a product of being in prison? And mind you, the younger, the younger prisoners look at their older peers and, and they see them, they, I've heard one of them refers to a lifer's disease. Like they see these old men who are, whether they be, they be full of grace or whether they just be committed to their truths, they see them potentially as having been destroyed by the experience of incarceration. So the kind of certitude that they're trying to sell to the younger men, the younger men see as a symptom. And it's a symptom that uh, the younger men, they, they kind of, they want to have the contentment that the older prisoners have, and that's what they call it, contentment. Um, uh, but they are afraid of turning into them. I think, in, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that I think one can relate to, in the way that, um, you know, that sometimes we're afraid of turning into our parents. In some ways, it's counterintuitive, because it is a little like, like college in that respect, in that certitude is, is the one thing that you don't need in an environment that is safe for exploration, because they have the time and they have the opportunity. So the idea of moving towards certitude is kind of counterintuitive to the environment in some ways. Yeah, that's, it is, that's really insightful, right? Because there is, uh, I say about a couple of, of characters, you know, that, um, uh, the, you know, the graduate student and the prisoner do have something in common. I mean, uh, there are the, the, the the capacity, the, the resources to sort of uh, to read texts and to think openly and so on. And you do find uh, these men who are just these really open-ended intellectuals. Um, 
uh, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it because you know every every generalization that I'm giving you can be refuted by by other people that that appear uh, uh, in the book. But you know, in some sense, what you're getting in the book, uh, the life that takes place in the chapel, is really only a fraction uh, of their life. I mean, it's about eight hours of their day, and it, in many ways, it's a non-representative fraction. Um, uh, the kinds of religious certitude that they're cultivating in the chapel, where I agree, is a place where that is that is conducive to open-ended inquiry, is is a a way of being in the world that serves them the rest of the day too. It serves them on the cell block, um, in the you know in cramped quarters of dealing with people who might be out to get you, um, where there's scarcity and frustration, where you really have to have self-control because if you don't have self-control, you'll get into a fight, and then there it is, like two months, three months in solitary confinement, um, and also the having to uh, weather the experience of being locked up in a cell by yourself for you know whatever it is, nine hours a night. Right to, to confront that kind of solitude, where um, despair uh, is such a, a temptation to be resisted and overcome. What about the men who work as as guards and as employees in and around the chapel, and and their relationship to these men? So the, much like the prisoners, uh, the guards, and there are two that are featured. Uh, they the the position is called a a bid post, B-I-D, a bid post, meaning that they put in for it. So uh, those, both those men are themselves uh, religiously active men who um, like to talk about uh, religious things, and I think that's why they put in for the post. Um, the day in, day out uh, of the correctional officers, of the, of the prisoner chapel workers who are, you know, these lifers, uh, of the chaplains, uh, it's surprising, I mean, the, the word that applies uh, is, is collegial. I mean, it's a collegial environment. They are, they are essentially co-workers. Um, uh, it's sometimes said that the people who work at the prison, the correctional officers, are serving uh, life um, uh, eight hours a day for 25 years or something like that is the way the witticism goes. Um, but they, they share circumstances and they have mutual respect. I mean, I think that the, the, the guards are, are on guard for, for prisoners that they don't know well, but for these men that they've known for years and years and years, it, it, um, it's easy to forget, uh, that uh, that you're in a prison and that some people are free and some people are prisoners. Uh, that said, there's the constant, um, uh, constantly, the the you the, the the possibility of some kind of event that returns everyone to that recollection, and, and everyone remembers where they are. Uh, that's never too far afield. And is there a sense on the part of of the guards and those that work there a sense of judgment of these men in terms of their criminality, in terms of whatever it is that brought them there? I think less than you would suspect. Um, you know, the the the, the in so many ways, the day-to-day functioning of the place, uh, especially the chapel, um, which has a, a different culture uh, than other parts of the prison, um, uh, but it couldn't it couldn't function if the chaplains and the guards uh, saw the the prisoners um, as uh, murderers, rapists, etc., whatever they are. In fact, most of the men who are the central characters are, are there for homicide. Uh, many of them uh, for homicides that occurred years and years earlier. Uh, the central character, uh, Baraka, uh, has been in prison longer than I've been alive, and I'm 39. Um, uh, so it, it, wouldn't, it, would, it wouldn't work uh, for them to see these men that way. 
Um, and it doesn't come naturally. It, it doesn't come naturally to reduce uh, the men to their criminality. Um, that said, I think that when they're when they're prisoners, they don't know. They 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 approach them uh, with with the suspicion that uh, that their station demands. Um, and you know, and when certain events go down, um, uh, everyone does return to their to their proper social slot. And talk about your relationship with these men and how that evolved over time, and and your own sense of judgment or or lack of thereof. They, um, I was, they were really, uh, welcoming, uh, when I came. I mean, maybe, uh, the, the central characters maybe didn't start appearing in my field notes for, for a few weeks or months, but they welcomed my presence by and large. Uh, not, their lives are, are, are pretty boring. Um, they do the same thing every day, not a lot happens. And here was this young guy, I was, uh, 30 at the time. Uh, a fairly young 30. Uh, I was there to talk to them about uh, about their religion, here to, there to talk to them about what they wanted to talk about, and really to to play and to argue. Uh, my way of of, be, of doing my field work was rather, I think, unconventional. And I, when things were said that I found frustrating or I didn't understand, I asked questions and I and I argued. So we spent a lot of time arguing, um, very enjoyably. Um, so they they enjoyed my presence, I think, and, and relationships developed uh, uh, that uh, continue to this day. Um, as far as the the criminality or, or the, the the fact of their crimes went, um, uh, it came to me very naturally uh, not to see them that way. Um, uh, I don't know why that is, uh, but I, it's that isn't something I, I need to work to forget. And in fact, you know, if I had an axe to grind, uh, in, in one of the axes I had to grind in doing this book is that the way that we tend to define uh, uh, prisoners by virtue of their crime is, is a huge mistake. Um, it, it participates in uh, th- that way of thinking about people um, belongs to an era in which we essentially lock people up and throw away the key. It's not an era in which we are uh, giving people uh, the chance at parole and to, and to start again, but rather we define them by the worst thing they've ever done, and, and many of them have done terrible things. Um, so I, it, it came easy to me not to talk about crime. I wasn't interested in crime. Now, that said, one of the surprising things was how much I ended up talking about crimes because the crimes uh, are important to them. Um, they are, not only because they are seen from the outside uh, as uh, that they've done this or that, but their understanding of themselves, their narratives about themselves, uh, move through those moments, uh, especially, again, the evangelicals who, you know, in the tradition of, of Paul and Augustine, have a story about how they were sinners and then they've been, they've been saved. So most of them, over time, the, the, the men who I got to know well, wanted to talk to me about their crimes. They wanted to talk to me about their crimes because they wanted me to know that they didn't do it, or they wanted me to know that they did do it and that they take responsibility for what they did. If you went back 10 years from now, do you think much would be different in terms of their attitudes and in terms of the way they view the world and what they would say to you? you no, know, it's a great question. I mean, so by now, uh, I, 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 after my field work, I, I stuck around uh, in the prison, uh, Villanova University, uh, the, the perennial uh, basketball uh, powerhouse. <laughs> Um, has a BA program at the prison, uh, and I taught in that for a number of years. So by now I've known these men uh, for a long time, and, and they've changed and, and I've changed. Um, uh, 
they've probably changed less than I have uh, because they're older, because their circumstances are less conducive to it. But, you know, people, uh, the, the book takes the, the structure of a novel uh, in part because, you know, people are really surprising. Uh, the, the people are really in, are inconsistent and surprising, and it's precisely in their inconsistency and surprisingness that they are interesting uh, and lovable. Um, some of their, their, the ways that these men might change also has to do with how the times are going to change. Um, uh, the, the kinds of religion that have, uh, prop- that have become popular over the past uh, 10 years, 15, 20 years especially, uh, are really apolitical. I mean, that's one of the stories that's told, that the shift from the nation of Islam to Salafism is about the abandonment of politics. And that abandonment of politics uh, works really well with a carceral order uh, dedicated to control. As the young uh, uh, chairman of the NAACP at Greaterford said, if you try to stand together, they treat you with Thorazine, right? So there's uh, collectivism and political action has been totally uh, disincentivized because if you try to do those things, you get shipped to a different institution, you get put in the hole. Are times changing? Is the California hunger strike? Does it uh, uh, foretell a, a new era of prison activism? I mean, th- that's what these men are in some sense protesting in California, mm-hmm. right? The use of indefinite solitary confinement uh, uh, to punish certain kinds of action. But it seems like, at least uh, by their lights, the situation is so bad that they, they will now risk everything. Um, so so the, the culture will change. The, the book tells the story of this, you know, dramatic evolution of of, of prison uh, religious culture in this country, and uh, that will continue to change, and we'll, and we'll have to see how it changes. Joshua Dubler, the book is Down in the Chapel, Religious Life in an American Prison, just out from Farris, Strauss, and Giroux. Joshua, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. No, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 